Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. Before the biggest fight of his career in February 1964 against the then world reigning champion Sonny Liston, the precocious 20-year-old Muhammad Ali, known as Cassius Clay at the time, proclaimed in front of cameras, I am the greatest. He knocked Liston out in the seventh round and went on to become one of the greatest boxers of the 20th century. Everybody wants to be great in some way or another. My recent Google search, How to Be Great, yielded 9.8 billion results compared to 4.9 billion results on COVID-19. Interestingly, when I Google how to be the greatest, it only generated 841 million results. Perhaps the gulf between being great and the greatest is too big to bridge. Perhaps people are satisfied at being great, but not the disciples of Jesus, though. We read in the text from Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 50, that they were arguing amongst themselves about who in the group was the greatest. But what is greatness? What makes a person great? It is hard to define because it varies. The definition of greatness can vary from person to person. However, this morning we're going to find out Jesus spelling it out for us and telling us what we are to do if we, are, if we want to be great in God's eyes. That is our main consideration this morning, even though we will be unpacking other ideas along the way. As we come to our text this morning, Jesus' public ministry in Galilee is over. His arrival in Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee will be his last visit there before he heads over to Jerusalem and to the cross. Jesus withdraws from the crowd at this time to spend exclusive uh, time teaching his disciples. I should say Jesus withdraws from the crowd to spend exclusive time teaching his disciples. Most scholars agree that Mark chapter 9 verses 33 to 50 is a collection of Jesus' teachings and sayings delivered on various occasions, all about the true nature of discipleship, focusing on the proper attitudes and relationships among the followers of Christ. Here, Mark groups them together and then deliberately places it immediately after Jesus' second prediction about his death and resurrection. The first time he did that was back in Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 33. Now, why does Mark do this? He wants to make the point that Jesus' death and resurrection has implications for discipleship, which entails not just our relationship with God, but also our relationship on a horizontal level. Mark tells us the disciples didn't understand what Jesus meant and were afraid to ask him about it. But it isn't just fear that holds them back. Mark tells us the other reason being that they're busy arguing about who in the group is the greatest. This is so inappropriate given what Jesus had just told them, that he would be betrayed and killed. That's because all of them are obsessed 
by a national, nationalistic concept of the Messiah where they believed that within a very short time they would be promoted to posi- positions of power and influence where when Jesus replaces the Roman Empire with his own kingdom. The selection of Peter, James, and John to witness the transfiguration of Jesus earlier probably brought their ambitions and insecurities to the surface. Here's Jesus' response, verse 35. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He then takes a little child among them to illustrate his point. This is the first area of discipleship, and it's about imitating Jesus' humility and selfless service that welcomes and embraces everyone, especially those we deem to be less than us. We'll come back to this later. The second area of discipleship is about having an inclusive attitude toward Christians who are different from us. Uh, For instance, uh, Christians who are not Baptists. What is our attitude like towards them? In verse 38, teachers, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Their action, of course, drips with irony because it was only recently, if you remember, that they had botched an attempt to exercise someone from evil spirits. I've written about it in the newsletter. Here they are obstructing someone who's having a go at it and being more successful at it than them. To be sure, this unauthorized exorcist is not like the sons of Sceva in Acts chapter 19, who fail in their attempts to cast out evil spirits out of people using Jesus' name, which, by the way, in those days, it's very typical. It's a common practice. Exorcists use whatever name of deities that they thought would work, like a magic word. It's clear, then, that this anonymous person, while he's not part of the Twelve, is obviously a believer and follows Jesus, unlike the sons of Sceva. Can you see the disciples' arrogance? And perhaps the arrogance in ourselves, too. Here they're saying, Lord, you have handpicked each one of us to be on your A-team. And on this basis alone, notwithstanding our talents and gifts, we stand head and shoulders above this pretender who's trying to muscle in on our turf. No one should be able to cast evil spirits out of anyone in your name without our say-so. Garland comments, They want to preserve their position in a select circle and do not want to share their power because it might undermine their status. They want exclusive rights to Jesus' name as if they own a special copyright to it. Others must apply to them before they can use it. The same attitude emerges in churches today. If we cannot do it, we do not want anyone else to do it either. The disciples' sense of self-importance and greatness blinds them to the freedom that this guy is bringing into people's lives. Jesus shocks them 
by, by, by not applauding them, but by reproving them for their action and stance. In verse 39, Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Jesus is saying to the disciples and to us that God's kingdom is bigger than our experience of it. We should be celebrating those whose allegiance is to Christ, even if they're different from us with their music, uh, with their traditions, with their theology and and non-essential issues. He illustrates this point undergirded by the authoritative, truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. He's telling them, one day you will find yourself persecuted and so hated by all that a cup of water will be hard to come by. You will be grateful that at such a time, someone extends to you the most basic act of kindness by offering you a cup of water in my name because you belong to me and not because he is one of us. God will reward this person for the smallest act of service. Using hyperbole, Jesus warns us of sin's danger to others and to ourselves. That's the third area of discipleship that he speaks about. In verse 42, he says, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. The little ones here do not refer to children, but to followers of Jesus, referred to in verses 14 and 41 earlier. Through the imagery, Jesus warns us that injuring or destroying the faith of a fellow believer is a very serious sin. That's what to stumble means. And then in verses 43 to 48, Jesus shifts the focus to sin being a danger to ourselves, not just to others. Verse 43, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter live maim than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eyes causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. The Bible clearly condemns bodily mutilation. So these verses are not to be taken literally, but they're strong language. And Jesus uses hyperbole to make a point, emphasize a point. Eyes, hands, and feet all represent what we see, what we do, and where we go, respectively. Jesus' warning then is this. We're not to approach our spiritual health with a laissez-faire attitude, with a casual attitude. Whatever endangers our relationship with God, what 
whatever endangers our relationship with one another, through what we do, through what we see, and through where we go, they must be dealt with with the same urgency as a surgeon who amputates a limb that endangers the life of the rest of the body. Why? Because God's judgment and hell are real. Sin is the reason why Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die for us. The consequences of sin is painful and costly. It is very serious. And Jesus is saying here, take sin seriously. Take your relationship with me seriously. Take your relationship with one another seriously. Do not entertain sin in your relationships. Do not have a casual attitude about sin. In our culture, God's judgment is seen as one of the great anathemas to Christianity. We prefer God who's loving and forgiving, but holy and righteous? We're not too sure about that. Is it any surprise then that the studies of the spiritual lives of young adults in Western countries reveal that their prayers are generally devoid of both repentance and the joy of being forgiven? Finally, we have Jesus' miscellaneous teachings about proper attitudes and relationships among the followers of Christ through two puzzling sayings about salt. The first is in verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. This statement only appears in Mark. The fire used here is not the fire of judgment as used in reference to sin earlier. The statement recalls the ancient practice of sprinkling salt on sacrifices to purify them for the Jewish altar as commanded in Leviticus chapter 2 verse 3. So the fire here is probably referring to the purifying effect of persecution, of trial and testing in the life of the believer. And this makes uh, perfect sense if you remember that Mark is writing to persecuted Christians in Rome. The second salt saying is divided into two parts. The first reads, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? See, in ancient times, salt was not pure or refined the way it is today. Since it was seawater with all the moisture removed, salt contained a lot of impurities. This means pure salt, salty salt, was more valuable. Salt that has lost its saltiness is therefore useless. In the same way, when Christians do not incarnate our beliefs, and we as Christians do not incarnate our beliefs, when our values, our attitudes, our standards, and lifestyle are not distinct from the world in which, uh, in which we live, uh, and we're not offering a radically uh, attractive alternative, what good is our witness? What value does our witness have? John Stott wrote, the church has a double responsibility in relation to the world around us. On the one hand, we are to live, serve, and witness in the world. On the other hand, we are to avoid being, becoming contaminated by the world. 
So we're neither to seek to preserve our holiness by escaping from the world, nor to sacrifice our holiness by conforming to the world. And that's the challenge for all of us. How do we live in the world and yet not be of the world? The second part reads, have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Garland explains, to have salt among yourselves means to share salt, a reference to having meals together in the context of fellowship and peace. When people share meals together, they're at peace with one another. So here we have Jesus laying out his expectations for how we are to treat one another. And it is aided by imitating his humility and selfless service rather than, rather than by being preoccupied with our mistaken sense of self-importance and greatness. And that's what I want to return to in closing. Back to the disciples, all grown men arguing amongst themselves on who was the greatest. Jesus sits down, which is the usual posture of a Jewish teacher, and said to the twelve, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and servant of all. In an active parable, if you like, he illustrates his point much like ancient prophets who use symbols besides word. Verse 36, he took a child, uh, he took a little child whom he placed among them, taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me alone, but the one who sent me. Now, in contrast to Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 16, and Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 to 3, Jesus' point here isn't about the imitation of a child's humility, but the treatment of them. Our treatment of them will in turn determine if we are great in God's eyes. But unless you know something about the standing of children in Jesus' days, we will miss his point completely. Today, children have the same human rights as adults, at least according to UNICEF. However, back then, both in Greek and Jewish societies, children occupied a very lowly place, having little significance and importance in society. They had no power, they had no status, and they had very, very few rights of any. Child abuse was the crying vice of the Roman Empire. Infanticide and abandonment were common. Hippocrates, who lived 400 years before Jesus did, often wrote about how physicians should ethically interact with patients. But he never once mentioned children. Why? That's because children were not people. They were seen as property, no different than slaves. Interestingly, in Aramaic, the language and uh, probably the language that Jesus used to teach his disciples, the term child 
can also mean servant. In Greek, a servant is someone waiting tables. Edwards writes, the Greek world generally considered service demeaning and undignified. How can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? Said Plato. Express the basic Greek attitude towards service and servants. In other words, a little child was an excellent example of the last and the least in the honor scale, in the honor and significance scale. That Jesus picks up this child who is virtually worthless, or little, who has little value, significance in society, takes him in his arms, sticks up for the child, would have raised eyebrows. But that's precisely the effect he wanted it to have on his 12 disciples. With his illustration then, Jesus does not repudiate greatness, but rather he redefines it. Greatness in God's eyes hinges upon, is determined by how we welcome, embrace, and serve the little children. Those we or society regard as unimportant or insignificant, like the lowly, the vulnerable, those without position, wealth, and status. As God's servants, we are to be attentive to, care for, and be kind to those, uh, to people like little children, because there is no ranking or hierarchy at the foot of the cross. Everyone is equal in value and worth in the kingdom of God. Every person is priceless, like an original painting. This servant attitude is extended also to jobs that you deem beneath you, jobs that society deems as unimportant or lacking value. The values of the kingdom of God represent a dramatic reversal of human values. In the world, you may be called upon to serve or be someone's lapdog, but the motive and the hope is by doing that, you would get to the top. You would get to a position of greatness. And once you get there, serving is over for you. It is time to sit back, be rewarded, and have everyone serve you. Have everyone bow the knee to you. However, as Edwards asserts, in Jesus' teaching, to the contrary, the concept of service grows out of his concept of love for one's neighbor. Jesus' selfless service of others fills the concept of serving with entirely new content. The posture of the servant is a visible manifestation of the reality of God's love. Greatness in God's economy is not reserved for the gifted and privileged. Rather, it presents itself to every believer in the common and simple tasks of serving others. Indeed, the more common and humble the task, the greater the deed, for humility is the essence of him who said, 
For I am among you as one who serves you. Astonishing. I am among you as one who serves. In other words, as Christians, we're never to stop serving in humility because that is what our Lord and Savior Jesus did. He's, and he's the greatest. And so by imitating his example, we become great. What the world thinks are critical for greatness, such as power, success, recognition, position, wealth. A disciple of Jesus is no, long, no longer submits to that metric, to that bar, nor is he controlled by them. Rather, through the Spirit, is reoriented to the values of God's kingdom, which are upside down from the way the world around us works. That is why Jesus announces that when we welcome the lowly little children, we honor him and the God, and God the Father who sent him. When we welcome the lowly little children, we in turn welcome him, we in turn honor him and God the Father who sent him. For application this week, this is what I'd like you to consider. With the Holy Spirit help, make time to consider who the little children are in your life, who the little children are in your front lines, both in terms of, of people, but also jobs, the kind of jobs that you consider and deemed to be lowly. And somebody else should be doing it, not me. I used to do that when I was scraping at the bottom of the barrel, but I'm a, a, in a position of power and influence now. I, I don't do those things. Yeah? So think of who the little children are, both in terms of people and jobs. And then read and reflect on Jesus' words. Whoever welcomes... One of these little children in my name welcomes me. What would that mean to welcome little children, to welcome people who are lowly, to do tasks that are lowly? What would that mean? What would that look like? Let me repeat. This is the one thing we can do and must do if we want to be great in God's eyes. Let us pray. I'm so struck by your words in Luke. For I who am, I, who am in your presence is the one who serves. So how can we consider serving to be lowly, to be beneath us, when the greatest of all came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many? Father, we repent of our arrogance. We repent of our pride, thinking that we are above certain people, that because we, are, we occupy positions of power, occupy positions of influence, uh, because uh, of, our, of our salary bracket that we're in, we think that we're more important. We think we're better than those whose salary brackets are below us. What arrogance that is, Lord. How arrogant of us to think that certain jobs are beneath us. 
How arrogant for us to think that there are certain jobs we're not going to do because they're lowly and considered to have very little value in, in society. And therefore, by doing them, it must be a reflection of, of our own worth and value. That is a lie. It doesn't matter what we do in life. But when we do them in humility, we do them with a servant's heart, we do them to glorify you and honor you and please you. In your eyes, we are great. In your eyes, we're adored. In your eyes, you take pride in us. We make you proud when we serve. We make you proud when we walk in humility and serve in humility. So, Lord, I pray and commit this week to you and weeks ahead that we will take hold of opportunities to welcome little children in our lives. We'll take hold of opportunities to welcome tasks, whatever they are, especially those that we think are beneath us. We will do them with a joyful heart. We will do them with a heart that worships you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.